When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, before we begin the show, I just wanted to take a couple seconds to uh, thank you all for listening. I said this on social media the other day. I just wanted to reiterate, uh, I certainly wouldn't be able to do this without you, and I wanted to thank you. Now, one way you can help me is uh, Distractions Media is having the group that I'm a member of is uh, having a live stream on the 23rd. In other words, tomorrow, if you are listening to this in on release, otherwise, you know, obviously, you might not have a reason to go there. Uh, they're carrying out a 24-hour live stream to fundraise for some people to get to a uh, convention if you'd like to donate or to kind of see what we do when we're not uh, doing things like this. Um, go there, which is at twitch.tv forward slash distractions media. Thanks, everybody. And now let's uh, move on with the show, shall we? Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 81, The March of the Normans. In the wake of the uh, Norman Conquest, as we saw in 1066 and discussed in the previous podcast, the Norman focus was actually on trying to consolidate power within England, trying to express themselves in a way that set forward controls, trying to defeat various enemies, trying to stop possible usurpers to the throne from rising up amongst the Saxon leadership and just generally trying to deal with all of this. As we talked about it again in that point, we did have some Saxon leadership on the edges near Wales that actually received support from the Welsh kings and largely were helped in their revolutions, rebellions, and uprisings by the Welsh. This started to moderate as William came and started to put his rather heavy hand down onto some of these Saxon lords, and in the process of that, uh, slowly started to usurp them and putting in his own friends, followers, and loyalists into those seats of power. We have to remember that largely England at this time, while we won't delve into them greatly, consisted of mostly a Saxon Viking population that was invaded by the Norman hierarchy rather than actually by an entire population center. So you didn't have a mostly French-speaking Norman class until much later in, in the process. But as time went on and as this continued to grow, obviously as later on the English start to lose territory in France, uh, this becomes much more common and the integration between Normans and, and the English in general starts to happen much more frequently and strongly. In the meantime, as the Saxons are rebelling and dealing with that, the Normans had obviously come to the point where they realized they needed to do something about this, and specifically about those areas close to the Welsh, who obviously were being influenced by those kings. So in the case of the Normans, they set up specific uh, lords, basically some of the most aggressive 
the most ambitious lord. Some have attested, some academics basically say that William was trying to take care of people he felt, even amongst his own retinue, might be a problem down the road. So instead of them, you know, getting bored and deciding to take over the kingdom, he'd give them something else to conquer, so they kept themselves busy. And uh, that would be Hugh d'Avranche, Roger de Montgomery, and William Fitzosborne, uh, who were earls of Chester, Shrewsbury, and Hereford, Hereford. And they effectively controlled those areas. And because they controlled those areas, and as well as the Normans continued to conquer the south areas of England below Wales, uh, conquering the former countries of Cornwall and all of the, the old West Saxon area, they would actually start to pen in the Welsh from being able to influence others in that area. And in the process of that, of course, these Norman lords started to move inland. We've talked quite extensively about how they moved into South Wales and started to influence things in Southeast Wales when we were talking at one point about the influence that the Saxons had had in the Southeast. One of the things that happens as the Normans move in, and, and again, we did bring this up briefly, is that when they come into areas like Monmouth and into later on into Gwent and into areas around Cardiff, uh, one of the first things that they do is they take down the old palaces, some of which were based on old administration centers that the Romans had had. So these buildings were ancient even at that point and uh, then built their own castles, their own keeps. And this is actually where the castle building really begins in earnest in Wales in general. It's in the Norman keep building that they start to commence at this stage. Castles, you have to remember, we, a lot of us kind of think of the Middle Ages and we think castles are kind of a, a normal thing, but castles really don't come about until you have to deal with the Vikings and you have to deal with consistent invasions on the mainland. So you start to build fortifications that can handle uh, attacks. And I mean, the Romans had walls, but most of those had fallen long ago. They didn't really, you know, city walls didn't survive, you know, ancient periods up to the modern day in the same way that they would do later on because they weren't built to be necessarily places that you could survive a surrounding. Uh, as, like I said, the Vikings come along and there's much more sieges happening and you end up building more and more complex structures to deal with those sieges. So you end up with these castles, which not only are they projections of power, which is obviously one of the parts of this issue, they are also something of a, of a protection point, and they're very difficult to take down. It takes long periods of time to, to destroy one of them compared to, say, uh, just a wooden fort or a walled city. And because of that, it gives you a lot of advantages that you can use to your benefit. And they get much more complex and much more uh, interesting as they go. In fact, some of the more interesting ones that have been built in Southeast are actually built by marcher lords and built and started even before Edward takes over and he starts his series of castle building. The castle at Kerfilly, for example, was built in the started in the uh, 13th century early on and was actually something of a of a a measuring stick for a lot of the castles that came later it is still one of the biggest castles in wales it covers quite a large territory it's very well plotted and planned out as far as a castle that could handle 
attack. It never did get conquered in that period or after it. And still to this day is one of the more fascinating examples of that period. And because of this, one of the developments we have with the Normans is they start to build up towns and communities. The Welsh to this point had been mostly a village community type of situation. They were, they were very agricultural, uh, very much divided up into that kind of lifestyle. So urban lifestyle wasn't common in Wales. It didn't really exist and effectively even in southeast Wales after the Romans left, there really wasn't a heavy uh, urban presence. A lot of the old well, uh, Roman communities had been abandoned and so you have a lot of former towns and former civatas that suddenly start to get used again and suddenly become much more important. Places like Cardiff, for example, starts to grow in this time period. Places like Newport and uh, Tintagel and all of these kind of places start to grow in the period of Norman conquest, in part because the Normans are trying to get their Welsh subjects under control. And one of the ways that you can force control is to move them into central areas and in central places where you can kind of keep an eye on them. You can have guards on them if you need to. You can, you don't have to deal with them running off into the woods and having to deal with violence consistently. Because, of course, one of the, the, the tactics that gets brought up quite commonly about the Welsh in this time period is that they were very good at guerrilla fighting and guerrilla tactics, which were seen in some ways as uh, without chivalry and without honor. But at the same time, it, it is something of a successful tactic that they did use. It doesn't mean that they fully relied on that, and I think it's it would be a mistake to think that the Welsh didn't fight as normal soldiers of the medieval period fought. It's just they didn't necessarily have the same amount of standard equipment, same amount of military size as the Normans, so obviously they, they would do things a little differently in order to deal with a different enemy. And I think that's something to keep in mind when you look at these kind of things. The Norman push into Wales begins actually as soon as the 1080s. Uh, it actually happens in Morganui, uh, that area of what is now uh, Monmouth and, uh, and Glamorgan. Uh, this area is being controlled by a Welsh king named Istin ap and Girgant, and, or Justin ap Girgant, depending on... Your pronunciation or the way you would understand how it's said. Uh, another option in English is Justin, son of Gurgant, uh, or Gurugant, depending again on, on how you pronounce it, and there seems to be multiple options here. But nonetheless, he is considered to be the last king of this particular nation, and even though, in a way, this area won't be fully conquered for a number of years, probably not until midway through the 12th century, um, at this point, he is a ruler of that house, and that this is a, a lineage which is stretched back, uh, at least in legend, back as early as the 550s or 584, depending on who you believe, under the kingship of Turdrig. Uh, members of this house, of course, have been linked in marriage across Wales and in various different kingdoms. So it, it is something we've talked about in the past. We've talked about this kingdom and how it it's into relationship with uh, Dovid and, of course, Powys uh, had been an issue over the years. Of course, uh, Morganui had a fairly well-known uh, 
Christian community growing up in Llandaff. Uh In fact, of course, later on after the conquest, it will be the site of Llandaff's, uh Cathedral, which becomes a central point of collecting some of the Welsh documents, uh, including including the uh, Red Book of Hengist, which uh, that, along with uh, some other items which are gathered up, is somewhat used to defend themselves on access to church rights, access to predominance in the Welsh church and all of those kind of things. So there's, there is that, that important point that they serve at this stage, but that will be after the Normans have already conquered the area or at least control the area. And so one might argue that their point of view is a little different than what it might be if it was a Welsh kingdom controlling it. Now, the one aspect of doing this and in this growth that seemed to happen very quickly, we go from 1080 when you have them starting to take control to about 1090 when they've actually fully removed the kingdom from being independent, you see this slow crawl to the west after this point. But at the same time, the Normans are running out of troops, are running out of the ability to enforce their will. And we start to see this because the Welsh aren't fully under control. They're still uh, committing acts of aggression against the Normans in the area. There is still some independence even amongst those smaller communities and to be fair it's it would not be easy to be able to enforce your will when you're already still doing because keep in mind at this point the normans have been in charge of of england a little under 20 years at this point so they really don't have a great grasp on anywhere over there and yet they still keep pushing which again i think goes back to showing that the the, the need for the Normans to continue to keep their own, uh, well, in the case of William, to keep his vassals and his followers happy meant that he had to continue to conquest even when it didn't make a lot of sense and it didn't seem to be to their advantage, whereas consolidation might have been a more useful tool. And we see this even in the north. I mean, we'll have, obviously, we have the revolt of 1094, which brings the Normans into conquest conflict with Powys and eventually with Gwyneth and we see how that continues to play out and cause issues for them well into the future and by the time of Matilda and Stephen this is an area that they totally lose control of effectively. Meanwhile in the south the Norman lordships are continuing to move forward. They continue to grab more territory as they go. They seemingly are much more successful I would argue just simply because the resistance isn't as as well thought out. The kings themselves, I mean, in the case of, of David, you have the king passing away before it's consumed by the Normans. The Norman lords of the area start to take control, start to intermarry with the Welsh at this point, and you start to get actually uh, a lot of that intermingling of, of communities, that's where, of course, Gerald of Wales steps in as a, a local monk, someone who has influence in the church at the time in the area, and will go on to, of course, write extensively about Wales in, in a very pro-Norman, uh, propaganda-filled report, but nonetheless important uh, document for us to understand kind of what's going on in the March areas, because we sort of lose track if you just look at Welsh sources that are independent, because they almost stop talking about them. There isn't really an interest now because they're not a part of the Welsh independent movement. And to be fair, it could be also be that there's not a lot of contact. Even back in this period, 
you know, long before we have the influx of English people into the south of Wales, there still is a separation between the north and the south and kind of, I think, a built-in animosity which has come about over the last few hundred years of Welsh history just down to the fact that they fought so much and they've had so many times where both sides have tried to take control. And really, there's only only been a brief moment in time in the Welsh history where they were united and it didn't last very long. And that, I think, largely is the fundamental issue. Whereas if you look at Ireland, this is kind of the same basic fundamental problem. But in Scotland, they united early enough to be able to resist and to be able to build alliances that were bigger than themselves. I think the biggest difficulty that the Welsh had is there wasn't a France around that was fundamentally of enough assistance to be able to help them keep their independence. And I think that's where we'll see this problem lies. There isn't a lot of allies for the Welsh outside of Wales. And when they can't get allies to help them, it becomes a problem because then you're either relying on Saxon uh, people in revolt or a Norman who might have common cause with you briefly. And those alliances don't always work out to your best interest or behavior. Uh, Combined with this, of course, you have Henry I, who comes into power after William Rufus. He aims at trying to push into Wales. His goal, obviously, to continue to push forward and take over more and more of Wales. And in some ways, has to step in when the Marcher Lords start to fail in their process. Keep in mind that the Marcher Lords have made progress all the way to the west end of Wales. They've actually pushed uh, Dovid into a tiny little nubbin basically under Doithbarth and pretty much control almost all of the south of Wales. There's And even the stuff that they don't fully control, they still have influence over. Uh, they're influencing Powys, they're influencing Gwyneth. Uh, so in effect, they've been fairly successful of slowly taking away the independence of Wales in general. Uh, we also see a creep of Welsh interest in Norman issues. So you have, not only do you have the beginnings of the intermerger of a population with another population so that the Normans start to intermingle, intermarry, intermix within the Welsh society, you also have a development where you see the Welsh themselves start to intermingle, intermarry, and commute within Norman society to the point where they start to find common cause with the Normans. The Welsh are actually some of the, especially in the South, will become part of the military that fights other Welsh people. So there will be this this separation, even though they're still speaking the same language, even though they still speak and act culturally the same, unlike the Normans who are culturally French in their, in their upbringing and in their idealism and have moved into England and still have mostly that idea coming into Wales the Welsh have kind of seen the stability they bring and I think that might be the larger problem because when we look at this period of time before the invasion of the Normans and before the control of the marcher lords there's a great deal of instability going on in Wales and and one of the things that you find when you look at history is that a lot of times where people talk about they want freedom, they want liberty, they want democracy. Well, people like stability most of all. Stability allows you to have a family. Stability allows you to bring up that family and be safe and not have uh, 
armies marching through your fields, destroying your crops, stealing your children, you know, raping your women, uh, burning your crops, burning your house, bringing you into service. There's all of these things that happen in these circumstances that, you know, would cause certainly the peasant class to feel like maybe it is a better thing to be ruled by the Normans. Not because the Normans are necessarily a better type of leader or ruler, but rather because they offered stability. And if anything, as the Welsh start to fight against it and get more into the guerrillas type tactics, that might actually work against them in the communities because there isn't necessarily that same attachment to the leadership in that area. Specifically, if the king has passed away and there isn't a lot of links to the descendants, then it's much more difficult for them to try and take over. And we will see that happen again and again and again in Welsh history going down the road where we will find that on battles that are being fought where the Normans and then successing Plantagenet English and the English later on, in all cases, there are Welsh people in the armies of the English. There are Welsh people fighting against fellow Welshmen, and they're doing it because they feel a better affinity, or maybe they're getting a better paycheck, or maybe they're getting a stability, or maybe they're being promised things that the English can deliver that the Welsh can't. And this is part of the problem, I think, in this situation, and this is probably what feeds into this. Because under normal circumstances, this wouldn't happen. But we can see this in other examples historically. While it's not a straightforward one-to-one -one example, if you look at the American Revolution, the American Revolution, one of the things that it tried to accomplish was it was trying to unite all of North America under one banner. 13 colonies plus Quebec would be the 14th colony. And I guess, and I would assume, they would try and bring in the... the East Coast nation, uh, colonies as well, eventually in Canada. Uh, but it, as they invaded uh, what was the former New France of only, what, a decade ago? Or I guess, no, more than that. Two decades before that, they ran into a barrier because the New French, or the Quebecois, however you want to call them, weren't unhappy with the British. They were a lot less happy with the Americans and they immediately rejected their calls for assistance and their calls to arms. And if anything, stood by the British, not necessarily in, for, in men at arms or trying to fight back, but rather by just not coming out to the American suggestion that they unite with them. And in a way, I think that's kind of what the Welsh did. It's not that they were disloyal to the Welsh communities, but I think as the Southern Welsh got settled under these new leaders and these new uh, lords, much like what happened in the Roman period. As the Romans come in and they offer them stability and a sense of financial gain, if you want to put it that way, and an ability to raise a family without fearing their deaths at every turn, then suddenly that becomes engaging and something you want. Because at the end of the day, a serf is a serf is a serf, and it really doesn't matter who you're serving at that point. You might feel loyal to the local lord who is, you know, descended from lords you've served in the past. Or you might actually feel like they're part of the problem. And you're kind of happy they're gone. And maybe the new lord gives you a little benefit here and there. Maybe he promotes you so you suddenly become, you know, the local leader in the area. All of these things become important to them and can show us why... 
they can gain influence. And keep in mind, of course, the south of Wales was heavily influenced by the West Saxons for about 200 years at this point. So they'd already kind of unified with the English before them and had been influenced by Mercia and all of that. So they had been in contact, likely culturally intermingling with the Saxons before the Normans. And the Normans come in and, as I said, offer stability. They bring people into centers of communities. They do different things. And, of course, they are vicious in the way that they oppose resistance. And so you learn to obey. You learn to fall under the control of people. It so often happens when you look at historical examples. So often, stability trumps liberty. And that isn't necessarily a flaw to those people, where it might be to you, and it might be to me. And so we have to remember those kind of things, and we have to keep that in mind. And give people a bit of slack when we talk about these kind of things, because of course there's a lot of historical issues that people have with with people who fall in line with governments they don't agree with or fall in line with people they don't agree with. But we have to keep in mind why they're doing it, how they're doing it. That's the difference between being a historian and being, you know, someone who's delivering a political statement. You don't look at things through slanted political eyes. You have to look at it through historical eyes, which understands that people's motives and reasons, while you may not fully understand them, are theirs and they are important. And uh, next week we'll go actually into Gwyneth a bit more and we're going to talk a little bit more about how it's changing under its new king and his successors and how that actually sets this kingdom up to become the predominant kingdom for the next 150 years before it all comes crashing down. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for everything you've done for me. Uh, once again, let me thank my Patreon supporters who have been awesome and they are keeping this afloat. And I so appreciate it. And uh, with that, we'll call an end of this for today. And uh, we'll see you all again in a short while. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.